Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork London Oldgate. My name's Sarah Koshansky, and I'll be hosting the show this evening. As you've probably guessed, David, Jason and Simon were unavailable. Therefore, this week, I'm on point. Joining me today, we have Fintech commentator and girl disrupted Liz Lumley. Thank you for coming, Liz. Hello, ladies. Uh, making her Fintech Insider debut, we have Nina from Bud. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do at Bud? Yeah, so I'm the business development manager at Bud and bringing open banking to life. Brilliant. Uh, Also making her debut is Anna Bennett. Hi, Anna. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm Anna Bennett. I'm with Fiserv. I'm head of partners for Thinkit. Brilliant. And our final debutant is Sophie Winwood. So, Sophie, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, all. I'm uh, Sophie from Innovate Finance. That uh, Those of you that don't know about Innovate Finance, we are the industry body for UK fintech. So we're a membership organisation, sort of really powering and, and supporting UK fintech. And um, I look after our partnerships. I feel like all of you should be in white dresses and clothes and we're like <laughs> welcoming And you. you and I can wear black and sit in the back. <laughs> Um, so, con- And also, one final thing I have to say before we get started is congratulations to those of our guests who were part of the Innovate Finance Women in Fintech list that got published today. Uh, brilliant. Okay, so without further ado, let's get started with this week's news. So our first story this week is uh, was submitted to uh, Fintech Insider News by Emeka, um, and it's about US banks launching the first new payment system in 40 years. So the Clearinghouse, which is owned by major US banks, has finally unveiled a real-time payment system based on Vocalink, which is a British company that is now owned by MasterCard. Um, The new service will allow account-to-account payments that take place in seconds rather than days, which they currently do, apparently in America. I know, I can't believe it. the system is pretty similar to any, anybody who's familiar with faster payments in the UK. Um, but the big key difference here is that it will allow additional information to be sent with payments. So sort of confirmation messages and stuff like that. Um, Nina, what do you feel about this? Thoughts as the token American? Oof. Oh, two token no, Americans. Sorry, two, two Americans. Brilliant, ladies. Yeah. So speaking as one of two Americans <laughs> in the room, all I could think when I read this was finally like it's it's 2017 like we got there guys it took a while but um i've definitely joked before when people ask me that i moved here for faster payments and now that it's here i'm like maybe does this mean i have to move home now like i don't know i moved here for standing orders and direct debt oh well there you go but um what i am curious about to know is like how this is going to um affect venmo yeah, so for those people who are, who are not particularly au fait with the American payment system, the Venmo is the, the P2P, so person-to-person payment system in the US, which goes down really, really well because they don't have this sort of pass-to-payment system. Now they have this, it's a direct competitor, and I believe uh, that the banks that ha- own the Clearinghouse also have their own competitive service, so Zelle. Zelle. That's um, the one. Who no, like, no one has heard of it. Sorry, guys. Like, <laughs> none of my friends we are using it. We talked about it here. I know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know about this because um, people at Volkwink, I know, have been working on this for a while. My good friend Liz Oaks, who's a partner at McKinsey, has been, every time I've seen her over the past few years, she's been on a plane to the U.S., um, and she was all excited. She posted this on, on Facebook yesterday. She was quoted in the FT as saying, finally. Uh, <laughs> I think literally everybody's notes. The, fir- the first thing on mine yeah. is a long time coming but yeah. you know yeah. same deal but yeah <laughs> but it's kind of like you mentioned them now i mean what i found being a global fintech commentator <laughs> is um you get a lot of people from the u.s talk about the future of payments and they bring up a lot of these american apps which are fine there's not, nothing against them no but you have to come back to them saying the reason why these got you know developed and built up in the american market is because they don't have 
the mature payments infrastructure that the rest mm. of the world has. Um, so yeah, <laughs> um, and also I don't think that banks are under any regulatory mandate to do this in the U.S. This is a market-based. This is a mar- I mean, America is very much any regulatory mandate. They, there's a massive pushback culturally with America anyway. Mm. Um, so this is a market-based solution. So yeah, I would I I, I want to see how they're actually gonna fulfill this um, and yeah. how it will affect some of these apps. And how long it takes to roll out as well? How long it, because if you've only got the clearinghouse, as far as I understand it, there's only like, you know, five or six major banks who are, who are there to start with, how quickly you can get that out. Because there are so many banks in America. Like I once tried to compile a list and... Phew. There's a whole community <laughs> banking network. Yeah, that's very different from, from you know, in Europe yeah. and, in, and in this country. That That's very huge. I mean, just what I know about when America rolled out their version of chip and pen... Which there was some rolled eyebrows which around is the not, eyebrows which dice. is not what we have here in this country. It's not, and I and I'm from my friends and you know you have friends on Facebook that are American, um, and <laughs> they say stuff like I thought this chip and pin thing was supposed to stop fraud and my card was now cloned at Target or Walmart and and I have to go in and say hi Liz here. This is what I do. <laughs> what you have is not chip and pin. It, <laughs> um, and, the, and, you know, I don't want to go into chip and pin, but the reason why is the banks refused the regulatory mandate. They argued with the government that they should not have to have a pin database because their customers would forget the pin, which is ridiculous because everyone has a pin number for their ATM. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I want to see how, whether this is the faster payments we know and love. <laughs> So t- time will time will tell really on this one. I think it sounds like a great idea, and finally we're there. But we we need to wait and see the execution before we can make a a final comment on this. I will just say though, I love that the amount that they sent was three dollars and fifty cents. So like the equivalent of my bank account right now. But like great, it's very them though. though it's very them. Yeah. yeah, that was that was half a latte, right? Um, so moving from America to China, our second story today is uh, about Alibaba's single day, which sets a record with $8.4 billion spent in the first hour. So I'll give you a little bit of context here. Alibaba is the Chinese e-commerce giant. Um, They made $25 billion worth of sales on one day this year which is called Singles Day. And Singles Day, for people who don't know, is basically a Chinese festival where people who are single buy themselves presents to make themselves feel better, as far as I understand it. That's every day. Um, I mean, you know, we won't won't go into the... Treat yourself. Um, There's a couple of interesting points here. One is that 90% of those purchases were made on mobile phones. The second thing is that Alibaba went out of its way to help people buy on stores. So Alibaba is an e-commerce platform. But, for example, they enabled payment by facial recognition in 100,000 physical stores to boost their sales. Um, So, Anna, I know you've been in China recently. Yeah. What do you think about this? I think it's fascinating. So we were in China as a family for three weeks this year. And culturally, it's such a a a juxtaposed um, culture. It's completely ancient belief system um, that's still in place with most people there Um, but you know very very modern way of of transacting so uh, Singles Day really interesting it used to be called Bachelor's Day um, was just for the boys but then the girls got involved and uh, what do you know sales go up hugely so fascinating Um, and and again something to watch I think you know we've seen this trend in in the UK with things like Halloween and Black Friday coming across and actually I thought the more interesting report this week was um, CNBC saying that it's not just China that this year it was Thailand and Singapore that got really involved as well and 
and revenues there were huge and it is mainly women doing spending so yeah. incredibly important and you know great it looks like it's spreading and why not treat yourself <laughs> yeah. I mean for a little point of context I know I know a few people have got different points of context here but Amazon Prime Day which is kind of the closest thing I could think of because Amazon being the competitor to Alibaba in, in most of you I know, mark it in my calendar <laughs> was was only one billion dollars worth of sales so you know it's a minute proportion of of kind of what we're seeing in china that this is what we always need to recommend remind ourselves when you know wechat and alibaba and alipay china they've got experience dealing with huge volumes so you know anyone over here who sort of dismisses fintech startups and you know they they don't have the scale well these guys do and and they're coming <laughs> and it'd be interesting to see will this momentum keep coming you know the percentage change from last year was such a step change and you know they were doing 2,560 transactions a second. <laughs> Say that quickly, twice. Um, but, you know, is that is that going to continue? Can it continue? I think it probably can. I mean, you look at the size of, uh, we thought we were staying in a, a small um, town and uh, the taxi driver's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's a small town, it's only three million. We're like, oh my, oh my God, what, what do you mean? And you look at, actually, the, the Chinese are having to pay farmers to stay in the land and not move to the cities so everyone is migrating away from their cultural background in terms of how they operate and how they spend and how they earn I mean interestingly if you're doing that if you're forcing people to stay out of the cities you've got to give them an incentive and presumably mobile payments and online shopping are a pretty good incentive so that'd be great for me (laughs) although apparently Alibaba said that they um, helped a farmer sell more than 400 400,000 duck eggs. So it's going the other so, way as well. So wow. facilitating. Great. Yeah. This is good. Duck good. eggs are big, apparently. <laughs> big in China. Big in China. <laughs> so um, staying, you know, uh, in the, the Asian uh, vicinity, our third story today is um, about a chatbot being launched by Standard Chartered. So uh, the chatbot is being built by Casisto, and the idea is it will help with customer inquiries. Um, it's a text-based chatbot. It will be available by the bank's website or mobile app and will allow retail customers to get, I'm going to pause here, account information, make payments, transfer money, track expenses, and analyze their spending. Um, interestingly, it's subject to regulatory approval, which I suspect is to do with actually being transactional rather than just doing what most other chatbots do, which is just, you know, saying, answering frequently asked right. questions, by the way. So... Um, it's an interesting move. We've seen quite a few chatbots emerging recently. Does anybody have any thoughts on this one? It, it's only text-based? Yeah. It's not voice-based. Okay. For so, now. For now. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I have, for ages, been very anti-chatbot. Only because... Um, <laughs> Liz no, has feelings about chatbots. No, because... Because uh, I think a lot of banks got really, really excited about them because they could fire people. Yay. Um, and also, it was original, you know, the original AI wasn't what I consider AI or machine learning. It's rules based algorithms. It's like a survey. It's, a, you know, that I don't like. It's a literal kind of like if yes, then yeah. why? If no, then B. But if something moves move into like a real conversation where it recognizes your voice, where it can talk to you like a person and then can, um, you know, basically take away these sort of mundane tasks from humans so that they can do other things then i'm super pro chatbot um so yeah so i don't the fact that it's not voice recognized right at the moment makes me nervous about this particular chatbot yeah i think i'm I'm the same with you i have a little bugbear about this which is um, it seems like the only use of ai in financial services seems to be 
chatbots at the moment. And there is so much more that AI can be done given the vast amounts of data with bank. And I get that, you know, it's an easy win. It's cost cutting, you know, and you can see it as tangible and it's, it's customer interactive. But, you know, there's so much more value we can get out of this technology. Um, you know, we need to get past chatbots. I think, I think there is. But I have to say that as an employee, as a mother, as a wife and a friend and all those other roles that I fulfill in life, I have a 100,000 things to do every day. And if my bank via a chatbot can do things very, very quickly for me and efficiently, oh, then I'm all over that. But the question is, I mean, my, my concern is not if I completely agree with that, but my question is, can it do things quickly and efficiently? Or will it misunderstand me, go, that message is not recognised, you have to call this person and wait in line? Is like, it just that's an excuse my concern, to, to not- fire expensive people with a substandard service that's yeah. not going to be what's going to make your life easier? That's what well, makes me... So to that point, I recently went to this workshop that was hosted by Capita and Digital Leaders, and it was specifically on chatbots and head Headless user interfaces? Headless. Yeah, so, i.e. Alexa, <laughs> Please explain. Alexa, Google Home. So they're headless user interface. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Um, or at least that's the industry term. And so they were saying that um, there's a bunch of representatives, um, a lot from governments, uh, councils, and um, there was the Asthma UK was there and Age UK were there. And they were saying that they do have call centers, but call centers are, as we mentioned, quite costly. Um, But a lot of the times, the majority of the calls that they're getting are quite easily resolved and have similar answers. So they were looking to try and implement chatbots to try and move that along and cut costs in that way because they don't have that much money. When it comes to banks, you know... They, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had some, you know, for example, Monzo has a great like chat experience, but there's a human at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the interface is great because I send them a message and then I put my phone back down on my desk and carry on doing what I was doing. And then 20 minutes later, they're like, oh, this is what you need to do. And I'm like, great, that's a great experience because I don't have to, you know, Anna, to your point, you have children to raise and things to do in the house and you have a job. And the last thing you need to be doing is sitting on the phone for like 30 minutes whilst they faff around. Yeah, exactly. So if you, yeah. I mean, to, to get, stay on AI a little bit, I'm, I'm going to go off on a tangent on every story now. Um, so I was at the Finastric conference um, this week, and someone came up and said, uh, asked me a question saying, why haven't PFM tools taken off in recent years? And I said, because most of them are crap. Um, but <laughs> she didn't say that on stage, by the way. I was there watching. She- <laughs> Did I say shit? No, yeah, yeah, you might have done, yeah, okay. you might have sworn on stage, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the old style PFM is stuff, that, you know, it was, it was separate from your bank account, you had to manually input, and of course, that's a bad customer experience, but AI, done correctly and intelligently, might make those services better, and my, like, as you said, I'm a busy mom myself, I, I want to have, have everything automated, have everything, yeah, time back, exactly. Just going back to your point on Monzo, so in their most recent investment deck, it did say that they have been trialling AI, and it was um, able to identify 80% of the questions correctly. Uh, so it's, it's, they're not using it at the moment, so not sure. But, you know, yeah. there obviously is the technology. And Is 80% enough? Is the question, yeah. right? If, if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, which like the economist part of my brain goes, like, actually, if 20% of people end up on the phone and taking twice as long, then is that worth it? What I wonder, though, is on the flip side, we talk about, is this, you know, suitable for our industry, but we're kind of in our bubble. And how many people that are just... What do you mean bubble? What do you mean? <laughs> but we're literally in a bubble. Like, <laughs> we completely relate. Uh, I we're talked in the to my friends from America right about chip and pin, like well, they should care. <laughs> you know, on the other end, there's these consumers that actually are going to have to presumably use this chatbot. And if you tell them like AI, 
if I were to tell my aunt that, she'd be like, "What do you mean? What is it going to like take my information and like who's who mm. who has it? You know?" Yeah. And she gets very worried about these things. So I wonder the, whether the customer adoption will show that this is worth it. Well, that that security point is a nice segue into our next story. Um, I should actually point out because I forgot to say that Sharon submitted that last story to FinTech Insider News. So we like Sharon, so I don't want to leave her out. We're only uh, going to mention women. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, ha- I, hate to ru- <laughs> I hate to ruin it. Um, the next story was submitted to FinTech Insider News by Simon Taylor, ah, who you may or may not have heard of, you know. Um, we like him. Simon this- a woman now. <laughs> Um, (laughs) (laughs) sorry Simon Um, this is a story um, which is about an Apple face ID hack okay so Apple launched face ID as a security feature quite recently it's on the iPhone X or 10 what what are you supposed to call it these days it's both I say X so there's no Apple users in my vicinity so um, the iPhone you cannot afford yes that that one the expensive one the iPhone (laughs) expensive Um, and obviously what happened was immediately people went, let's try and hack this. Like the, the minute you launch a new security feature, that's what happened. So the story that uh, we're talking about today was featured by TechCrunch. And it suggests that a research team in Vietnam called, I'm going to say this wrong, Bacav, found a way past it using a replica face mask that combines printed 2D images with three dimensional features. Um, the group has like published a video demonstrating that this works, but no one actually actually knows whether it's true or not uh apple obviously keeping mum because they always do uh any thoughts on this does it say appears to be a hoax yeah so it's not pro- they, okay. they kind of this scaremongering of fake news you know it's just it's so also it doesn't sound like the sort of technology they've used to try and hoax uh, to try and actually make this real this hack real is readily available to anyone they said a readily available consumer 3d printer hands up who's got a 3d printer at home Oh, I've got that fine. That's literally zero. No one, one literally zero. No one else? But I think it, it's a real problem. And actually, Nina, as to what you were saying earlier about, you know, was it your aunt or your, your gran? Or, yep. Yeah. Um, th- there is a real problem, actually, with people trusting new technology. And I think that's why fake news and scaremongering is really, really dangerous. So what I thought was interesting was a study by um, Rocket Fuel last year, um, which showed that a far higher proportion of women thought that AI and biometrics um, were terrifying and, you know, didn't want to use it. But the fact is that actually banks particularly put in place quite a lot of strong authentication and certainly with PSD2 coming down the line there's a lot of authentication it doesn't just rely on one factor it is multi-factor and I just this sort of scaremongering is good for no one I, I just I, I'm glad you mentioned your aunt because I, I I my my 74 year old aunt is my my canary in the coal mine for yeah <laughs> she she doesn't have a Facebook account because she doesn't want her identity stolen and I've had you know no one's going to steal a 74 year old with high school teacher's identity I'm sorry but um, yeah she, she bought everyone little, you know, special protective covers for your chip and pin cards for Christmas. I, I saw somebody on the plane with that. I, I was on the plane back from Portugal. And I love her. Oh, I love my aunt. She's lovely. But yeah, that is. It's like it's, the people with foil around to yeah. stop the contact list. <laughs> <laughs> wallets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I think, sorry, I think, I think you both have a valid point, which is um, if you want this technology to be, to be widely adopted, which banks do, then you need to make sure that people understand it properly. And it kind of goes back to that big financial education piece, which is, you know, and my mum, who gets featured on the podcast quite a lot, is similar. <laughs> and is a bit like, oh, I'm going put my thumbprint in that. Or I don't, like, trust, you know, whatever wherever we're getting to, retinal scans or, or face prints. Um, it, it, it's not helpful because if you think about it, actually, these people have a 3D printer. The other one I was thinking about was the HSBC voice authentication that the BBC used oh, twins. identical twin, that took it? 18 yep. times to get into. Which we all have one of. <laughs> Those, right? 
That's ridiculous. <laughs> I actually, to bring up that, I read somewhere on some tech uh, thread that that's a pickup line in Silicon Valley now. Do you want to come back to my house to see my 3D, 3D printer? Oh, no. <laughs> so that's yeah. home. Yeah. I thought you were going down identical twin route. And I was yeah. like, that's home for me. So if that is, that's a problem. And I won't be moving back home anytime soon. So long as you're aware, Nina. Yeah. So long as you're aware I'll of what that actually guard, means. I'll be on guard, really, yeah. Um, okay, well, we're moving on. So the last story before the break is possibly the most patronizing headline I've ever read. Um, millionaire bankers feel sorry for struggling millennials, according to Bloomberg. This was submitted by Laura. So I'll give you the story and then we'll then we'll let loose. So the story is that in Credit Suisse's Global Wealth Report, um, the bank says that millennials are, on the whole, not what one would call a lucky generation. In reference to that group's financial struggles. So it basically says that they have faced particularly challenging circumstances, including the rigours of the financial crisis, high and rising house prices, rising student debt and increasing inequality. And concludes by saying that this generation will not only face greater challenges in building wealth, but greater inequality more generally. It does not, however, appear to take any responsibility for that situation or suggest (laughs) any reasons why these particularly challenging circumstances may have occurred. Um, Nina, I'll go to you first. We'll move our way around the millennials in the room. Right. So, you know, as a millennial, an avocado toast eating millennial, this, I read this and I was just like, but why? Why are you, why are you reporting on this? It's one of those things like, well, no shit, you feel bad for us. Like, we've got it really no, bad. At least they do feel bad. Well, okay, so, <laughs> but do they really, though? Do they really? But so, why don't they come up with products that fix a situation? And that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, instead of having pensioners, no offense, I love pensioners, <laughs> but like writing these inflammatory articles that are like, stop buying avocado toast and like pineapples and you'll be able to <laughs> afford a mortgage. Like, why don't you, you know, speak to a bank and say, look, we've got a problem and millennials are having a hard time and let's introduce products and services that they can actually use and help them save because that's going to get my attention. Otherwise, I'm just going to roll my eyes at you and go to crunch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, uh, this is Credit Suisse who did this report, uh, their equity arm. They're a private bank from Switzerland. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> one more remember that I'm just going to let that one just lie let that lie um, I was going to I was going to go down the route of uh, do you I mean it's not helpful I agree these kind of comments and we know this stuff everybody knows this stuff um, but do you think that it's actually possible to devise products that are are going to address this problem or is this bigger than actually financial services is this actually like yeah well no, we no, can... I think there is there is because banks are uh, now I'm Gen X and I had avocado toast for breakfast no I mean yeah the mortgage is the big thing okay uh, unless you are independently wealthy a bank should not be trying to sell a mortgage to a 20 something <laughs> in London because that's not going to help them buy a home or get a home or own a home or have any sort of equity. You know, in the way the financial system works now, you need to build up debt. You need to build up credit. You need to build up a fund. And right now, the products in the silos that banks are offering are not hitting anyone's I mean, need. I think there's an interesting thing here as well. You just mentioned about building up credit and building up yeah. debt. I completely agree with you. Like, giving somebody a mortgage is not helpful. Neither is charging them £2,000 a month for rent. Mm. But um, yeah. the thing, you know, I realised at the age of 18 that if I didn't have a credit card, I didn't have a credit rating. But I'd always been told by my parents that you don't borrow money you can't pay back. So you don't get a credit card because that will enable you to spend money you don't have. But then I reached 18, like, well, you don't have a credit score because you don't have a credit card. And I was like... 
oh, for goodness sake, <laughs> how do I get out of this one? I had the opposite um, experience. So my mother made me apply for a credit card because of that. So she's yeah. like, get this with a very low limit. Um, although she then forgot to mention <laughs> to explain to me how an APR works. Yeah, right, that's the thing. People don't understand interest rates either. Oopsies, so. sorry, mom. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we're kind of seeing is, yes, financial services are very important for the products, but does it actually start with the education? And is it is yeah. it on the government to then implement some sort of, uh, you know, uh, thing in schools where you have to learn about this up front? Oh, yeah, I, I completely you know? agree. I think mor- what mortgages are, what an APR is would be a blooming great start. You can get rid of general studies if they still teach that. <laughs> trigonometry. <laughs> trigonometry. Trigonometry. Nobody uses yeah, trigonometry in real life. Um, maths. <laughs> this kind of math. Useful math. Exactly. When I was in the fifth grade, we learned how to sign a check and to balance a checkbook. So I've used that often. I don't. Well, does anybody? I don't have a checkbook. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> really keep in mind, Liz and I are American, so we still use. Oh, you, check- you, no, 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 no. Okay, so I, I, I still do, but I. I actually have a good friend, Vivi, who's the founder of Black Bullion here in the UK, and she um, has founded a company around financial literacy, and they're going into schools and teaching about how how you balance, well, your budget, I suppose, and especially with students and student loans and that sort of thing. So maybe there needs to be a bit more backing for things like this. Yeah, yeah but we're not in that. See, okay, in terms of, I get the education side. But that's not reality now. I mean, when I moved to New York when I was 22 years old, I was told that your rent should not be um, more than like three times. Like it was, it, it basically was like three times your salary. Like it, no, the, it's the opposite direction. It's <laughs> yeah. a third. Yeah, it's a third. It should a, be more than a third of your monthly be no, salary. It should be no yeah. more than a third of your monthly salary. And yeah. I just about managed that. I had a rent stabilized apartment in Brooklyn. Um, so and now I'm you're just bragging. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you can't do that now. You can't going to London and say, okay, you know what, I can only do, now according to my financial education, I should have, I should only, you know, pay off my credit card every month, and my rent should only be a third of my salary, and, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. Maybe ending up in Wales. Yeah. Essentially. Hey, 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 I know, we both love Wales, but the house prices are considerably cheaper there. Yeah, no, I can see the point. I think that really... The whole thing is very depressing. It's good that people are realizing it. You know, this is a step in the right direction. What we really need is, is actually, I think what we've concluded here is that we need a huge, everybody needs to work together on this. So you need the financial institutions, you need the government. And if the government needs to push the financial institutions to do it, then maybe that's the way you do it. But like, and this isn't a British thing or an American no, thing. Absolutely. This is a, it, well, I would say global, a Western thing. Like, you know, millennials. And any big city that attracts lots of people, lots of different disciplines, lots of different industries is having this problem right now. And if you're not, if the young people can't live in that city, it's not going to grow. Well, I mean, I'm from the Silicon Valley and my parents wanted me to move back home to work. I decided to stay in London for faster payments, as we all know. But, you know. And the company. Yeah, well, that and Bud. Love you, Bud. But um, my friends all moved back home and they were just like, this is the worst thing ever. And then they've moved out and they're living in San Francisco now, paying about $3,000 for worse. rent. So really, which one do you choose? Yeah. I mean, I think if anybody has the actual answer to this, please, please submit yeah. it. Please email, email me. No, I'm going to go into more like a different styles of living in a way. Honestly, I know, I know the look on your face. I know. I was thinking about shared houses. <laughs> this is oh, what I'm no. thinking. But like not the shared houses that, you know, I remember. But um, I don't, yeah. So, no, so in New York, they're launching like 
I don't think it's like, is it related to WeWork? I yeah, have no I think idea. It is. I think it's but part they're of like creating. They're like, oh, groundbreaking! Like we're gonna all have co-living spaces. And I was like, a dorm, a student housing, <laughs> guys. What? Maybe we've <laughs> done that. that. Maybe not that, but something that's actually livable. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And I think we're going to be talking about it for a long time to come. Um, we're going to quickly take a break and we're going to hear from our sponsors. We're back shortly. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. So we never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the last week on this show. But don't forget, you can now head over to fintechinsidernews.com to read more about the stories we've discussed and many more besides. You can also sign up and join the discussion with everyone on the podcast, including most of us, I think, I'm looking around me, and many other fantastic names from the fintech world. Tell us what you thought of this week's stories. That's fintechinsidernews.com or tweet the show at fintechinsiders on Twitter or even find us on Facebook. So... Our next story is about Zimbabwe. Now, there's two interesting things here. One, apparently Zimbabwe doesn't have its own currency. And second, apparently Bitcoin is surging. So this was submitted to Fintech Insider News by Laura. The story is originally from Bloomberg. Um, To give you the context of this, Zimbabwe's military coup has resulted in a price leap for Bitcoin on the country's exchanges. So the price of the cryptocurrency jumped as high as $13,499. Uh, on the news of the coup, not coup, um, almost double the rate at which it trades in international markets, according to sources that uh, Bloomberg spoke to. The reason for that is that hard currency is becoming particularly difficult to get hold of following uh, the events, which makes sense when you consider that Zimbabwe doesn't have a currency of its own. Instead, the government made a number of international currencies, including the US dollar and the South African rand, legal tender in 2009. As far as I understand this, Bitcoin is popular because it can be held and people assume it will appreciate against the US dollar. So basically what we're getting back to here is Bitcoin as a safe asset, as far as I can understand this. If anybody else, well, as long, you know, if anybody wants to give me a different interpretation, um, I I don't think it's mining, it's buying. It's literally like I have I have five US dollars and I'm going to put them in Bitcoin because five US dollars won't exist in Zimbabwe or at least I have to have my money somewhere I can get at it elsewhere. So I had a friend who... um, lived in Zimbabwe for a while. Her, her parents lived there and they were European uh, English. And so, yeah, the, everything was done. This was before 2009. Everything was done in dollars or, or pounds. I mean, Zimbabwe's had, as, as it says in the notes here, they're having other problems right now. Has anyone checked the news like in the last 10 seconds? Is Mugabe still in the country? Um, and my brother-in-law lives in Zambia, uh, which is right next door. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, this is what happens with Bitcoin, though. Whenever there's a bit of trouble somewhere... But what does that say about it, though? Because, like, I mean, presumably traditionally, people would have rushed and bought gold. Like, you think I'm, I'm a, I'm a history student back well, in the yeah, day, yeah, but and people like would a commodity. Go, yeah, so, but the idea of like always buying gold or burying your gold in the back garden, or you know, burying your jewels or buying, you know, smuggling emeralds out of the country. The idea is that they all have value anywhere. So, is that what Bitcoin is now? Is Bitcoin the new 
gold or, or physical currency? Is that how, how it works? Yeah, I think so. Do you, though? Well, no, I don't. I don't. This is a question, saying, by the way. Like, genuine like, question. Like, like anybody... my hopes and dreams, but I see this a lot on Twitter because it's the font of all knowledge. But like a lot of people, like if Bitcoin's not a currency, it's a commodity. Um, and you know, I don't know. Well, you know, we don't live in Zimbabwe, and I know, like, it's a it's a contentious situation to be in, especially now and has been for the past few decades. And you know, you either have American dollars, you got South African rand, or it's like, oh, well, maybe I maybe this, you know, currency in the ether is a bit. I can at least have it was safe somehow you know you, you gotta think maybe how people might act when they panic i think it's a it's a kind of a choice when you've got all of the good choices laid out this is like almost out of necessity here mm. and this is that we have seen a lot of other use cases where the bitcoin has been flooded to when there's been extreme sort of um, instances and i don't know whether you can liken it to gold in that way because it is under stress and duress mm. that this seems to be happening but my purpose my point is that historically that's what people did under stress and duress was transfer their money their you know well, you their, sil- their silver dollars into gold yeah. Well, no, sorry. I'm, I'm not saying you should buy gold instead of Bitcoin. I'm saying... Send your gold to Zimbabwe now. Historically, when there were runs on banks or economic crises, people exchanged the currency they had for gold because it was it held its value throughout Europe and the Western world. I'm suggesting that instead of buying gold, people buy Bitcoin now. Okay, but so, you know, in the Twitterverse, we've got this like meme kind of meme watch when when bitcoin's rising and then when it suddenly drops it's like a roller coaster of emotions and like you want to talk about mood swings like bitcoin you need to sort yourself out so i i personally would not but maybe i'm saying that yeah but yeah but you're not in a country where like the leader may or may not be a nice person and may or may not not still be in the country right now as we speak at like five o'clock in the Some, somebody will find the news but <laughs> to your point earlier like i i was trying to figure out how much of the population is living below the poverty line and the world bank's most recent statistics are from 2011 which said that 72.3 percent of the population is living below the poverty line so i'm curious as to like who ah uh, that's who another very interesting question yeah. who is buying the bitcoin right that's much better yeah okay nina that's why you're on this pen. <laughs> Yeah, hard facts. Yeah, I mean, we, we were trying to work out, you know, the historical value of a different asset class, but actually, like, yeah. There, there's an elite class in Zimbabwe yeah. that's probably thinking, I'm going to get going soon, yeah. and I want to be able to access my cash in the cyber that's, I mean, there was, there, there was a stat in the Bloomberg story, and I can't find it now, but, um, oh, yeah, three million Zimbab- Zimbabweans have already gone into exile. So, yeah. like, it, it looks likely that this is a pattern that's going to continue. All right, let's stay on the stay on the Bitcoin um, the Bitcoin path, shall we say? Uh, but move to London. So, a London startup is launching a debit card that lets you spend Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, so, this was submitted to FinTech Insider News by Laura, and it's from Business Insider. Um, so, the background here is the firm, which is called London Block Exchange, has launched a prepaid. Co- don't laugh. No, it's great. We have a no no laughing at fintech names rule. I love it. We have to, otherwise we'd never get through anything. <laughs> oh, you spoiled oh, sorry, it. You said it. Spoiled it. Oh, no, gonna... because I've got this lovely card from Barclays that I get into airport lounges called Dragon Pass. So anyway, go on. I see. I told you a tangent. For every story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this story um, is. Um, 
So basically, it's a prepaid card linked to an app, so it's much like many of the UK's neobanks. Um, but in this case, it enables you to top up the card by buying cryptocurrency from the firm, London Block Exchange's own cryptocurrency exchange. Um, and then when you use the card, which is like any other Visa debit card, the cryptocurrency is converted into fiat currency, and they charge you a fee of 0.5% to do that. Um, interestingly, for me, this firm has been provisionally approved by the FCA. So this isn't the first time we've seen this. We've seen this quite a lot in Asia. But this is the first time I've seen it in the UK. I don't know if anybody else has seen it. Well, there is um, Wirex um, who do a similar card. So it's it's not the first time, but it's I, I think it I personally, I think it's a good thing. It's kind of bringing crypto into the mainstream. Is it though? Um, is it? Yeah. yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. So Zimbabwe aside, but you've got to look at who owns who owns Bitcoin and, you know, I could take a straw poll of it. I've got a wide circle of friends. There, I mean, reading a report, so um, Bitcoin News uh, just three days ago, which was based on Google Analytics, saying that only 4% of Bitcoin holders were women. Did you know that? I mean, Ooh, we didn't yeah, know that. No, so they're not called Bitcoin Bros. Pretty, but equally, like four percent of like, sorry, um, like something like ninety percent of Bitcoin is owned by four percent of people as well. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, so it's it, yeah, but it actually also, gets a smaller and smaller. Getting back to Nina's point, also, how much of the population knows any other cryptocurrency besides Bitcoin? I mean, oh yeah, so that's this card a point. aimed at. So this this card yeah. also so this is multi cryptocurrency. Yeah, Bitcoin, isn't it? Ether, Ripple, Litecoin, and Monero. Oh, we could go on the street now and ask if they can name anything other. I mean, the, there's, I mean, there's a couple of things here. I mean, the point about making Bitcoin usable, my my point to go sort of slightly back to what Nina was saying about who owns this stuff and what are they doing with it. If you bought Bitcoin five years ago and you bought it for $2 and it's now worth... Say, say you bought 10 Bitcoin five years ago and it's now worth, you know, £60,000. Stop showing off, then Sarah. Then buy a house. <laughs> that's that's just sickening. But, but that's... that's <laughs> That's capital gains tax, darling. What are you going to do with that when you start converting it little by little and shifting that money out over to kind of a debit card and you're spending it and you're only paying, and I'm guaranteeing you, I don't know this for a fact, but 0.5% is less than capital gains tax in this country. So actually, what are you facilitating there? If you're, I don't know, maybe you can only spend the coins that you buy through it. Maybe you can't backload it from Bitcoin you already own. But if you can backload it from Bitcoin or Ether that you already own, What's, what does that say? Like, there's, there's, that's a very questionable kind of trajectory there of spending. I'd love to know the audit trail and how they get around that. Um, I'd also love to know why they called it Dragon Card. But, you know, awesome. if anybody knows the answer to that one, <laughs> maybe please. it's a, a Dungeons and Dragons throwback Is or it? something. I, I don't know. I'm, I've no I'm idea. I'm going to be really nerdy. It reminded me of Yu-Gi-Oh! and like blue eyes white dragon anyone no no no, no okay. you're alone there <laughs> I, have a little bro- I have a little brother that's why i know that <laughs> sorry we'll edit that out don't worry about it <laughs> nerd alert um I, I guess i guess the point is that you know we, we need to kind of think about whether what what bitcoin is that's the whole purpose of those two kind of stories and you know what is it and what purpose does it have for the average person oh, in the street yeah, and i think, I think generally how accessible lot. it is yeah you know and it really people, isn't well the the grand majority of people are like oh there's that thing called bitcoin and you're like okay cool and, and then may, the people, maybe some people would know ripple but who would know you know Monero. well if anything i think people see it more as an investment to your point well, yeah rather than like oh i'm gonna go buy milk with it and kind of back to my back to my point as well there's really interesting studies <laughs> well yeah some really interesting about legality so if you go out onto the person on the street and say is bitcoin legal like 60 percent of people will say Thirty percent of people say it's illegal, and like three percent of people actually understand the legal status. I of use it. it to buy porn. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were going to say milk, Liz. I thought you were going to say that's they were the joke. people. That's a joke. I'm saying that's what people would say on the street. I've never used Bitcoin to buy porn. 
You can get it free on the internet, like everyone All else. Right, we're moving on. We're moving on. Um, so our next story, our next story is about Monzo. I've, I've had something to drink today. Sorry. <laughs> our next story is from thisismoney.co.uk and it's about Monzo. So Monzo's CEO and co-founder, Tom Blomfeld, has talked about how the company is looking to profit from open banking. So um, Monzo is very famous, widely known UK neobank, but it is yet to make any profit. So this is their CEO, Tom Blomfield, explaining how they plan to get there. Um, for context here, current accounts, which are Monzo's only live product at the moment, as far as I know, are loss leaders for every single bank. So in order to make any money, they have to look at other products. Um, Monzo's particular plan is to leverage open banking, which is those rules we talk about all the time, which enable customers to see their financial data literally wherever they want to. Um, so Monzo wants to become what they call the control center for people's finances. So the idea being that you just look at your Monzo app and through that you would see your mortgage, your insurance products, your credit card, and you could also buy additional products through it. Um, Sophie, the dream of open bank. Well, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's the dream. I, Sophie, I, I know you had some thoughts on this. So uh, um, Yeah, no, I do. Firstly, I feel like I should uh, do the guy some justice and do a Monzo did a thing because yeah, I feel like we do talk about them quite a lot. And, you know, on the last day we, we were talking about them raised, you know, um, 71 million and valued at 280 million. So, you know, it's, it's good now that we're starting to talk about how they are going to make profit because that is as much as it's not a huge valuation, it's still a very large valuation for a company that is losing seven million pounds. Um, so what, what I liked about this story is um, there's a lot of talk about open banking at the moment and the fact that actually not many of the public know what it is and, and we haven't really uh, kind of st stand, stand behind getting the public e educated and it's just going to happen in January. And But Monzo actually bridges that gap. So a lot of people have Monzo cards. It's become the kind of hipster card. And now in the, in the article, there's a nice little thing which says this is what open banking is and this is how we can apply it. And so from that point of view, I think, you know, this is a nice article and it will bring to life open banking. On the other point of view... I wasn't entirely sure how it explained they were going to make profit. I mean, yeah. you know, it mentioned the fact that they can make a little bit of transaction fee if they're going to offer, um, you know, switch um, their consumers onto products that are um, going to make them, you know, have a better deal, for example, utilities. But then it kind of went on and said, well, they're... They've got current accounts and their prepaid cards are losing them £50 a customer and they'll switch into current accounts. That's nothing to do with open banking. Then they go on to say, well, you know, their ATM fees, they're starting to charge them overall. That's nothing to do with open banking. So I, I kind of, as much as I like the article, I kind of still was left like, well, how are you actually going to make yeah. money? Comm commission, presumably, is the aim, yeah. right? The, 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 the short and sweet answer is they're going to take commission for every insurance product they sell you through their app. Yeah. Um, you just got to hope you've got the critical so mass. I'm, I'm going to be a bit of an evil fairy of open banking. Okay. Um, <laughs> Let's do it. Ooh, right. <laughs> okay, my... Uh, evil godmother today. Evil, yes. Evil, oh, evil fairy godmother today. I know. All right, I forgot to bring my wings. Um, <laughs> I hope... My, my dream of open banking is that consumers, I don't think consumers need to be told it's open banking. I think they just need to open their phone and see apps they might want to use and it's automatically connected to their, like they can choose to have it. Like this is the world I think is going to happen, which is going to be a huge shock to banks. However, what I think is going to happen is open banking is all about data. 
you know, Monzo, Starling, they're great. They're wonderful. They don't have the data that Barclays has and Lloyd's has and HSBC has. Um, so I think a lot of these new entrants on the open banking utopia are going to cut their teeth on Starling and Monzo and then go and do a partnership with. Yeah, I mean, the, the, they, they're going to play with the guys who know how to connect yeah. and then they're going to move on to the HSBCs of this world. Yeah. So can I be the bank fairy then? <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> because go obviously I, I talk to a lot of... I've talked to a lot of banks in my job, um, but I think it, we're assuming here that the CMA nine, who are have to be compliant by the thirteenth of January, aren't actually going to do anything with that data themselves and start consuming it themselves and giving customers much better propositions than they have. All nine are going to do that. Do well, is it just be HSBC working mm-hmm. with somebody who might oh, be helping? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? What's that? Hi, bud. <laughs> <laughs> But I think you can't assume that the CMA9 won't come out with things that really do deliver genuinely different... Oh, I think different about, that's my hope. That's my hope. That's my yeah. absolute hope. My problem with the, both PSD2 and the CMA directive is that it is a framework-based directive. It is not a standards-based directive. So those nine banks can determine how they comply with that regulation. And I do not believe that every single one of those nine banks really understands what open banking means. Well, I mean, and the interesting thing is I've actually got a collection at home. This is, this is how much I take my work home with me, which um, is a letter from each of my banks. There's one missing who hasn't sent me the letter yet telling me what open banking is. So I, from one of them, I had a lovely booklet and it had diagrams and it explained how it worked and it was really in simple English. I had two T's and C's in like font, which is like minus six. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I haven't heard from the fourth one yet. So in terms of educating the consumer, that's not going great. Like the only one I looked at was the nice booklet with the pretty pictures in. But should that be on the bank or should that be on the government? Well, it doesn't help that, you know... Well, if the bank wants to make use of it, then it needs to tell me how it's going to make use of it and what it's going to do. So it should be on the bank if they want to profit. I think it doesn't help that there are certain publications in this country that are kind of fear-mongering a bit with open banking. I don't know um, what are they, you are they mean. A daily, is it a daily paper? What? Something like that, I've heard. <laughs> um, yeah. And they, they really like to, like, scare people and say, like, they're coming for your data. Hide your data. Is that a good scary voice? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to say that's a wonderful segue into our next story, talking about, you know, um, Brexit. Oh, great. Anything more scary? You must scaries. mention the B word every So time. our final story of today is um, a, uh, so David Davis, who's the Brexit secretary, has apparently announced to UBS's annual European conference that financial services employers will be treated differently to other workers um, after Brexit and that they will be able to freely move around between European countries. Um, so this story uh, is from Business Insider. Because it's um, so hard for them. Yeah, I mean, really you know, let's, let's, let's just see what we think about this for a minute, ladies, for a start. Um. <laughs> stutter. What is it? Um, j- j- uh, we're all bankers now. Ik ben bankers. Je suis bankers. We're all yeah. going to be bankers. Oh, je, je suis... I mean, yes. there's, there's, so many, there's so many questions here. One is, one is, is this ever actually going to happen? Um, because there have been many things said by many people that I go, yeah, okay, it'd be great. But, you know, will this actually develop? The second thing is, like, well, why do the bankers get special privileges? Okay, so, if we wanna... think, so in terms of the David Davis, you know, smackdown, um, <laughs> <laughs> is, is now considering as someone who's, who's been in this industry for 23 years, there's, there are people that are bankers and there are people that work in the financial services industry and they do lots of other jobs that isn't banking. So what does he mean? Does he mean people that work for a bank? Well, I mean, the, 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 the ambiguity is, is you know, the, the stock stock word for, for Brexit, right? Well, that's like, what makes that's it what... fun, don't you? Okay, know. American, shh. <laughs> 
OG um, Brexit. The, the Americans can't say anything. Yeah, we okay. really. I'm sorry. I will. I will yeah. shut up. You are absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I mean, the one point I will bring it back to you to bring it, you know, around in a full circle is that who do we know the majority of bankers to be? They are generally speaking older gentlemen, right? So if you're allowing not them, always gentlemen though, they all wear dark suits. They all have red ties. Well, they're mostly gentlemen. So my point is, if we have, we have, which all of us have spoken out about how we need more diversity in financial services. How is cutting off everybody except those people in those privileged positions going to help that happen and and I don't I don't think it will I think it's kind of a if we start making exceptions for that group that group which has always been quite privileged it's called lobbying the 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 the, the square mile the city of London if it were its own country would be the fourth largest economy in the world you know 40% of ISD spend in the UK happens in a bank they're a huge lobbying force so they're gonna if they're gonna I I don't agree I, I agree with you I don't think this probably will ever happen and what does what does it mean by being a banker but um, yeah they're they're pushing their weight around they're saying well pff, you voted Brexit we want we want that not to apply to us well on that note we're all gonna head off to an event finances uh, women in fintech event but. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining me. Um, where can fat people find... Well, fat people. Hey! <laughs> oh, that is not what I said. That was me trying to read the script too quickly and failing. And on that note, this wraps up another new show. So thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Nina? You can usually find me memeing about on Twitter at Nina Mohanty. Liz? Um, you can find me at girl-disrupted.com and um, in various fintech events around the world. <laughs> Mysterious. Anna? Uh, you can find me at 7pm most weekdays on the concourse at Waterloo, bemoaning, <laughs> bemoaning British trains. Or alternatively, you can try me on LinkedIn. I write a few articles on there. Or you can find me on Twitter at Anna B underscore tech. Brilliant. And Sophie? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Sophie Winwood. And if you want to find out more about Innovate Finance, you can just go to innovatefinance.com. Wonderful. And as for me, you can find me at Sarah Koshansky on Twitter. So if you want to get in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or on Facebook on our Fintech Insider page or even on YouTube for exclusive content or email podcasts at 11fs.com. If you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.